Good morning, everyone. The, uh, the little ones and the, the workers can, uh, can be dismissed now. And again, as always, as they exit, be sure to pray for them that the Word of God would take root in their lives and work in them and transform them. And And then you could pray for uh, Rich Kasky and I. Uh, Tomorrow morning, we uh, get on a plane, separate planes, different flight, but we're going to the same destination. We are going to Los Angeles for a large pastor's conference. And uh, it's, a, it's a sweet time. I've been there the last several years. It's actually at Grace Community Church, the Master Seminary, Grace Community Church, which is where I went to church and seminary when I was in California. And it's a, a huge 7,000, 8,000 uh, uh, pastors are there from all over the world. And it's, uh, it's really a, a sweet time. So pray for us that God would use that and even um, not just for good ideas for ministry, but even just to uh, make us more effective leaders and shepherds for you all. But it is such a a pleasure to be here still. I'm I'm thrilled that I get to be a pastor here, that I get to be your pastor. What a delight it is. Well, I want you to imagine, just for a second, that there wasn't one single Christian in the entire DFW area. Not a single one. That out of the seven million people who live in this area that not one single person had ever heard the name of Jesus Christ. It's a totally pagan people. No churches, no Bibles, no no Christians. This is completely unbroken ground for the Great Commission. And let's just say that when we could bear that burden no longer, that we all decide to get in a large cargo plane and fly over the middle of Tarrant County and we get parachuted right into the heart of the DFW area, right in the middle of Arlington, right here. We're the only believers in the whole city. And I look at you and you you look at me and what do we do now? What do we do? How are we going to do this ministry if we're the the only believers in the entire city? Well, we're going to do the only logical thing to do. We're going to plant a church, right? I mean, what else are we going to do? We're going to plant a church. And yet this raises the question, doesn't it? If we were the only believers in the entire area, we would definitely plant a church. But the question is, with what raw materials would we do that? With what instructions? With what blueprints would we use to plant a church? What I want to know is what guide would we use not just to be a church, but to be a God-centered, Christ-exalting, Bible-saturated church that knows that we have nothing to lose and everything to gain by advancing the Great Commission. What do we use to be that kind of church? I'll tell you what we'd use. Among the many weapons in our arsenal to be that kind of church, we would use a small, easily overlooked three-chapter letter that Paul wrote to Titus when he was planting churches on the island of Crete. That's what we'd use. Paul's letter to Titus. And the reason why we'd use Titus to be that kind of church is because, well, if we're going to be a church, we might as well be the kind of church that causes ripple effects into eternity. Am I right? If we're going to be, if we're going to go through the trouble of being a church, we might as well go all the way and be the kind of church that doesn't just settle for this city, but even goes after Judea and Samaria and to the remotest parts of the earth. And why on earth would we use Titus to be that kind of church? Very simply because that is the very kind of church that Titus was designed to produce. Which is really interesting that Titus would have that kind of power, isn't it? Because you think about it, Titus is a three-chapter letter 
written 2,000 years ago in a totally different culture, 6,300 miles away in the Greek language, centuries before Apple invented their first computer. I mean, what, what could Titus possibly have to offer the 21st century church with all of its complexities, with all of its challenges? I mean, if you want to grow a church, you need something new and fresh and cutting edge and relevant and hip and trendy and state of the art. Do you not? Or do you? Do you need that to plant a church? Because here's the thing about Titus. It's not just a personal letter between a couple of buddies who used to work together, i.e. Paul and Titus. No, it is inspired scripture by the living God who knows what he's talking about. And get this now, Titus is blueprints for a healthy church. In other words, when you strip a church down, as it were, to its bare studs and beams and to its very foundation, when you take away all the American cultural accoutrements that we think a church should have but aren't actually demanded by the New Testament, the raw materials with which you build and rebuild a church are all found in Paul's letter to Titus. Let's put it this way. If you want this church to be everything your wildest imagination has ever dreamed that it possibly could be, you can have that. You can have that. This church can be everything you have ever imagined it possibly could be. You can have it all. But what you need at minimum are the essential components found in Paul's letter to Titus first. That's where we're going. And yet this morning we begin where Paul begins, which, which is just his opening greeting. You know, you know those uh, opening verses in, in Paul's letters that we all just kind of blow by without thinking? You know, dear so-and-so, Paul here, grace to you in peace. Yeah, 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 blah, blah, blah. Okay, moving on, let's get to the good stuff. No, no, we're not moving on because Paul's opening greeting is the good stuff. See, here's the thing. Contained, and Paul's opening greeting is just four verses. 64 words in the Greek, and yet, and yet, in those four verses is contained a condensed, pressure-cooked, theological bombshell in which Paul unfolds not only a bite-sized version of the plan of salvation, but also his very mission as an apostle. And guess what? In unfolding his mission as an apostle, he also gives us the kinds of things that should define our lives also. In other words, in articulating his mission as an apostle, he also articulates for us what our mission is as disciples of Christ is. See, with very little difference between Paul's mission and our mission, Paul unfolds for us the kind of realities that should define our lives also. Isn't that interesting to you? That if you were looking for something to define your life as a slave of Christ, it's all here in Paul's opening verses and a small, tiny, little epistle that's so easily forgotten in the New Testament. So here we go. Here's where we're going. This morning, I want you to see from our text three defining realities. Three defining realities of Paul's ministry which should and must define your lives also. That's where we're going. Three defining realities about Paul's ministry which should and must define your lives also. But before we do that, before we see even one of those realities, we need to go back, as it were, and breathe the air of the first century first. In other words, I know this room looks like a, a chapel to a Christian school, but what you may not know is that this morning, Alex and uh, Luke and Carlos and I came very early and we turned it into a, a time machine. A time machine that 
is going to take you back 2,000 years, 6,300 miles away to an island in the middle of the Mediterranean called Crete. And there are five contextual factors, five factors about the context that make Titus an insanely interesting book. For instance, for instance, contextual factor number one, the author of the letter. The author of the letter, which I know we all know is the Apostle Paul, and, and he identifies himself in the very first phrase of the letter. Look at chapter one, verse one. He says, Paul, a slave of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Well, we know that. That's, that's no surprise at all. We, we knew Paul was the author. And yet, however, does it still shock you that Paul could be the author? What I mean is, every time we utter Paul's name, do we not marvel at the miracle of sovereign grace? Should we not marvel at the miracle of sovereign grace? Because you remember that Paul was the persecutor turned preacher, the murderer turned missionary, the one who used to rejoice when Christians were executed, became himself executed for the very message that previously he was so passionate to put to death. My point is not only was Paul the author of Titus and half the New Testament, by the way, but he was the least likely candidate on the planet to become a Christian, let alone the greatest missionary in the history of Christianity. My point is, if Christ could conquer Paul, Christ could conquer anybody, including the hardest Muslim and the hardest family member who hates the gospel. Contextual factor number two, the date of the letter. The date of the letter, which, believe it or not, actually is relevant. You see, the days in which Paul lived were nothing short of risky and dangerous to be a Christian. Rome ruled the world. Nero was the boss. The ground was drenched with the blood of martyrs. Paul himself had been beaten and tortured for the gospel a bunch of times and, and fresh off a two-year stint in Italy State Penitentiary, Paul was released and immediately resumes his daring missionary labors to plant churches and to proclaim the gospel. And guess where it is where Paul went almost immediately after he was released? Guess where he went? You guessed it. He went to Titus. He went to Crete with none other than Titus himself. That was somewhere around the year 65, 66 AD. And get this, a year after his ministry on Crete with Titus, Paul again is arrested, locked in a Roman sewer with the worst of the worst criminals in the entire empire. And he was martyred in 67 AD, which means, which means when you read the words of Paul to Titus, you are reading the last words that he ever wrote as a free man. You are reading the words of a man who had a, a price on his head and a target on his chest. And that gives a certain weight and gravity to these words, doesn't it? Contextual factor number three, the destination of the letter. The destination of the letter. In other words, when Paul put his letter to Titus in an envelope, put on a stamp, licked it, sealed it and sent it, where he sent it was the island of Crete. And the thing about Crete is, although it was a pretty place for a vacay, it was not a pretty place to plant a church. You see, the thing about Cretans is that they, they loved their pagan heritage and, and opposing religious views like Christianity, for, for instance, they were not welcome to the party. I mean, they actually believed, get this now, Cretans actually believed that Zeus and many of the gods were actually born as humans on the island of Crete. Cretans actually believed that the, that the worship of the Greek gods began on Crete. They, they thought they were the birthplace of the gods. They believed that they were in the genealogical line of the Greek gods and that Zeus was their ancestor. At least that's what they thought. You see, to be from Crete, at least from their perspective, was to be a pure blood Greek. 
authentically Greek and everybody else was an inferior half-breed and typical island pride. They viewed themselves as superior and they viewed everybody else on the mainland with suspicion. And they were known around the entire Roman Empire as lazy, pleasure-seeking, free-spirit hippies who loved to party and could not be trusted in anything that they had to say. Because look at chapter 1, verse 12 in Titus. Look what Paul says. He says, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Yeah, seems kind of racist, Paul. Seems like you're being kind of, stere- kind of stereotyping there. And, and that's true. It seems kind of harsh and judgy at first. And yet, do you know what Paul just did here? He didn't make that up. Do you know what he did? He just quoted a 6th century BC philosopher named Epimenides who was born on Crete and who wrote that about his own people. <laughs> Even Cretans knew they were terrible. The point is, Crete may have been an incredible vacation destination to relax on the beach, eating baklava and drinking margaritas or whatever they drink on the beach in Crete, but it was a brutal place to preach the gospel and plant churches, and these are the people to whom Titus was called to preach. And speaking of Titus, this brings us to number four. Contextual factor number four, the recipient of the letter. The recipient of the letter, which in chapter 1, verse verse 4, Paul tells us exactly who that is. Look at what he says. To Titus, the true child, according to a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and from Christ Jesus, our Savior. Now, don't be fooled by the fact that Paul calls him a child. This dude was probably in his 40s and 50s and had worked with Paul for almost 20 years of ministry. See, Titus wasn't some punk rookie, fresh out of seminary, cutting his teeth on ministry for the very first time. No, this guy was one of, most, one of Paul's most faithful comrades for the last 20 years of his life. And Titus' name comes up in conversation exactly 12 times in the New Testament. And it becomes very clear that the way Titus is talked about makes it clear that in the bottom of the ninth and the bases are loaded and there's two outs and you're down by three, this is the kind of guy you want up at the plate. He went toe-to-toe with violent Jews with Paul in Jerusalem. When all hell broke loose at that disaster of a church in Corinth, Titus was the one who put out the fire. Titus helped plant the church in what is now modern-day Croatia. And here we see that he's on the church planting team on the island of Crete, which means in some form or another, any residual Christian influence that still continues in Crete to this day has Titus's fingerprints all over it. It's really clear that Titus, whoever he was, whoever he was, was an unbelievably precious friend to Paul whose character was impeccable. His giftedness was undeniable. His labor was invaluable. And his friendship was irreplaceable. Which brings us to number five, contextual factor number five, the purpose of the letter to Titus. The purpose of the letter to Titus. In other words, why this letter is in your Bibles, why it made the cut, get this now, is to teach us how to do church. In other words, whether you're planting a new church, revitalizing an old church, nursing an existing church back to health, Titus is the raw materials with which you do that. In other words, Paul's letter to Titus, get this, is the blueprints for a healthy church. And you see, I am so confident in the power of God's word, and I want you to be so confident in the power of God's word that if you have in your church everything Paul says a church must have and do, that will be a church that causes ripple effects for the Great Commission. And the question is, what does Paul tell Titus that every church should have? Paul, what are the blueprints of a healthy church? Let us know. We really need to know this, Paul. And Paul gives us four things, four things that every church should have. These are the blueprints of a healthy church. This is in Titus, and this is where we're going. For instance, number one, 
to be a healthy church that changes the world, you need a radical, unswerving commitment to preach and to believe all of the doctrines found in the pages of Holy Scripture. In other words, if you want a healthy church, you need sound doctrine. Are we committed to be that kind of church? Number two, to be a healthy church that put, puts Jesus Christ on display, you have got to have Bible-saturated, God-centered, Christ-exalting elders who shepherd the flock by preaching and teaching and equipping their people to live lives of Christ-exalting significance for the Great Commission. In other words, if you want a healthy church, you have to have godly, qualified leaders. Are you committed to being that kind of church? Number three, to be a healthy church that advances the global cause of Christ, you need to be a people committed to being personally and radically transformed by the power of God's word. Because a healthy church that changes the world must be a holy people unstained by the world. Are you committed to being that kind of church? And number four, to be a church, a healthy church that doesn't lollygag around and twiddle its thumbs and play little church games, you need men and women joyfully embracing their God-ordained roles as men and women. Men being biblical men. Women being biblical men who understand that to be a woman or a man or single or married is not a matter of, of, of conservative politics, but that those things are a matter of cosmic significance. And believe it or not, those are the blueprints of a healthy church. That is the kind of church that changes the world, and I want us to be that kind of church. Now, to be sure, a healthy church uh, ha certainly um, does more than those things, but a healthy church is never less than those things, and that's where we're going, and I want you to come with me, and Titus is designed to make us that kind of church. And all of that, all of those things bring us finally to Paul's greeting and salutation and introduction in which he gives us three defining realities about his life that should and must define your lives also. So ready or not, here we go. Defining reality, number one. You exist to bring about the faith of the elect. You here in this room, you exist to bring about the faith or the salvation of the elect. Notice first how Paul introduces himself in verse 1. Look at the text. He says, Paul, a slave of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. And that sounds pretty typical for Paul, doesn't it? I mean, it sounds like the beginning of every single letter that he ever wrote, and yet I need you to zoom in just a little bit on the details. Notice the very first title with which he introduces himself. He calls himself doulos theou, which literally means a slave of God. And I know your version says a servant or a bondservant of God, but let me just tell you, that word doulos in the Greek literally means slave. It always and only means slave, and it never means anything other than slave. It means that Paul understood that his life was not his own to do with as he pleased. It means that he understood rightly that he had no rights of his own as if he got to call the shots of his life independent of God. No, what defined Paul, the standout feature of his life, of his identity, was that he was a slave, a slave who rescued him from the ghetto of his sin through the death of Jesus Christ. Notice, he was not first apostle, a pastor, or missionary, or Roman citizen, or Jew, or Republican? No. First, he was slave. One who is the property and possession of another, namely the God who spoke galaxies 
into existence. Christian, like Paul, do you conscientiously view yourselves every single day as a slave of the living God? Is that central to your identity as a follower of Jesus Christ? It should be, it has to be, because that is exactly what you are. You are a slave of God. Not not that God treats you like slaves, by no means. You are sons and daughters of the living God. You are chosen and predestined. You are washed in the Savior's blood. God loves you more than you could possibly imagine. But do you see that through Jesus Christ, you are the property and possession of another? Do you see that you exist for the glory of another? Do you see that to be a slave means that you have unqualified submission to the word of God? Because that's exactly what that means. But then notice second, Paul not only calls himself a slave of God, but also an apostle of Jesus Christ. An apostle of Jesus Christ. And you know what an apostle is, don't you? That word in the Greek literally means a sent one. One who was singled out and selected by Jesus Christ and then sent out into the world with a mission to the world. To be an apostle meant that you were a hand-picked, fully authorized ambassador and representative of the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. And yet that raises the question, doesn't it? What exactly were apostles sent out to do? What was their mission? What were their goals and aims and objectives and and intentions? Let's put it this way. What were the defining realities of an apostle that defined their lives? That's the question. And here's the other question. What were the defining realities that defined their lives and what does that have to do with all of you, none of which are apostles? Well, guess what? I just want you to know that what apostles were called to do is hauntingly relevant for your lives. In fact, in verses 1 and 2, Paul gives three aims, three objectives, three realities that defined him as an apostle. And in so doing, he tells you exactly what should define your lives. And also, in other words, very little difference between the two, between apostles and you. What he describes for himself is also the exact same mission that you should have for your lives also. So look at the text, three aims, three objectives. You can see them in the text. Look very carefully at verse one. Paul, a slave of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Why? For what reason? To do what exactly? Here it is, number one. For the faith of the chosen of God. Do you see it? Why is he an apostle? What does he as an apostle exist to do? What are his goals and aims and objectives as an apostle? He just told us. He said that he is an apostle. Here it is. For the faith of the chosen of God. For the faith of God's elect. That is devastating in a good way, of course. Do you know what he means? Because the question is, who are the chosen of God? Who are the elect of God about which he describes, about which he speaks? And and what does it mean that he is an apostle for their faith or for the sake of their faith? What do you mean, Paul? Well, you know what he means. You know exactly who the elect are, don't you? The elect are those particular souls from every nation handpicked by the Father before time and then given to the Son for whom He would die and purchase with His blood. The elect are those those whose names were written in the Lamb's book of life from before the foundation of the world. In other words, to be elect means that your infinite joy in Jesus Christ was predestined for you before the ages began. You see, the Father doesn't leave anything to chance. 
Rather, all things, all things, everything from the particles of dust that float in the sunlight all the way up to the orbit of planets in galaxies that NASA will never, ever see. All things are under his absolute, undisputed dominion, and that includes especially those who get saved and those who don't. And election is everywhere in your Bibles. Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 5. Listen to how Paul begins his letter. Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, even as, here it is, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world in order that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself. Isn't that interesting? Paul leads off the letter to Ephesians by telling them that they were chosen by God. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 But we ought to give thanks always to God for you, brothers loved by the Lord. Why? Because God chose you from the beginning for salvation and for faith in the truth. And then Revelation 13.8 simply pushes us over the edge by telling us that in eternity past, there was a book. And the title of the book is called The Book of Life of the Lamb Who Was Slain. And in that book were written the names of all the souls from every nation who would ever believe and be saved. And you see, if you belong to Jesus Christ this morning, you do so ultimately because your name was written in that book. And are you ready for this? There was never a time when it was not written there. As long as God has existed, which is always and forever. Your names were written in that book. You had been chosen and there never was a time when you had not been chosen. And that is exactly who Paul is describing when he talks about those who are chosen by God. And yet we're still not done here because we still need to get to the bottom of of what Paul means when he says that he is an apostle for the sake of the faith of the chosen of God. What does it mean? What does he mean when he says that he is an apostle for their faith? I'll tell you what it means, and it's going to stagger you. When Paul talks about the elect, get this now, he's talking about people who do not yet believe, and yet they will believe because God chose them to believe. In other words, he's talking about people who have not yet obtained salvation, and yet they will obtain salvation because God chose them to obtain salvation. I mean, isn't that true? Think about it. Before you got saved, think about your life. Now, before you got saved, how long had you been chosen by God? Well, uh, for all eternity, right? And yet, how long were you alive before you believed in Christ? Five, 10, 20, 50 years? And so that means that there was a period of time in every believer's life when they had been chosen and yet they did not yet believe until someone came and preached the gospel to them and then they did believe. Do you see? That's what Paul's talking about right there. That's what defined him as an apostle. Finding those chosen by God who do not yet believe and yet proclaiming the gospel to them so that they would believe. That's exactly what he's talking about. That's what defined him as an apostle. And do you or do you not see how this perfectly collides with your life? See, although you are not an apostle and you never have been and you never will be, When you put your faith in Christ in that moment, you inherited the exact same 
apostolic mission, which is to bring about the faith of the chosen of God. The question is, do you believe that? Is bringing about the faith of the chosen of God fundamental to your identity as a follower of Jesus Christ? Or do you think, well, come on, Jared, that's, that's the apostle's job. That's a missionary's job. That, that's your job. My job is to be a good friend and a nice person and, and, and live a good life and be a good example and kind of just do what I got to do in life. No, 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 it is more than that. It is more than that. You see, when you see your neighbors tinkering around in their yards and fiddling around with their cars, you need to stop. And you need to, you need to force yourself to look at them and you need to remember, you need to remember that person over there is created in the image of God. And they will be eternally miserable or they will be eternally happy. And it all depends on what they do with Jesus Christ. Because yes, the gospel by all means is good news. But it's only good news if it gets there on time. Do you see? But see, this raises the question, doesn't it? If bringing about the faith of God's elect is one of the realities that should define our lives, and it is, then the question becomes, well, how do we do that? How do we bring about the faith of God's elect? Tell us, Paul! Which brings us to defining reality number two. Defining reality number two, you exist to make known the knowledge of the truth. You exist to make known the knowledge of the truth. You know, one of the straw man arguments that people typically level towards divine election is that if it's true, if it's really true that God chooses and determines all who will believe and be saved, if that's, if that's really true, then that means that evangelism is meaningless. Evangelism is meaningless. I mean, I mean, if people are going to get saved anyway, well, then the proclamation of the gospel is absolutely pointless. Have you ever heard people say that? And maybe I should ask, do you believe that? I find it very interesting, just in my personal experience, that usually the people who raise that objection aren't sharing the gospel with anybody anyway. But that's beside the point. Because here's the thing about election. Election does not make evangelism meaningless. Evangelism guarantees, no, election guarantees that our evangelism cannot possibly fail. Do you see, it's not either or, it's both and. God has ordained both the ends and the means to those ends. And the means to God's elect getting saved is the loving and compassionate and courageous proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God has his elect in every tribe and tongue and nation and people and all we've got to do is go out there and find them by indiscriminately preaching the gospel to everyone. See, and you can see this reality in the text. Look at verse one. Look very carefully. He says, Paul, a slave of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Why? For what reason? To what end? First, for the faith of the chosen of God. And second, for the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness. You see the logic in the text? It's subtle, but it's so profound. One of Paul's defining aims as an apostle. His mission as an apostle was to bring about the faith of God's elect. Agreed? But then the question becomes, okay, well, how then do you bring about the faith of God's elect? How, how do you even do that, Paul? And the answer is easy. You do that through the means of making known the truth. 
That's what he just said. That's why Paul put God's elect and knowledge of the truth right next to one another because how those whom God chose get saved is through and only through people like you and me making known the truth. Don't you see where there is no truth proclaimed, there is no faith produced. In other words, no one can believe in Jesus Christ if there is no truth about Jesus Christ to believe in. You see, no one puts their faith in Christ by contemplating the constellations. People don't get saved by looking at the ocean, beautiful though it may be. Hiking, fun though it is, is not the power of God to awaken dead souls and open their eyes to see Jesus Christ as a treasure of infinite value. No, souls get get rescued from the dungeon of sin. People get plucked from the flames of hell when and only when the life-giving gospel of Jesus Christ is proclaimed and published and preached and declared. Question is, did you know that? Did you know that? Did you know that the truth of God's word and the truth of the gospel contains within it, inherently contains within it, the power to awaken lost souls from the dead? Did you know that successful evangelism is not dependent upon the one declaring the message, but on the message that is declared? Now, to be sure, you've got to get the message right. It has to be true. It has to be accurate. You have to be faithful to the text. But to be a great evangelist, you don't have to be a great evangelist. What I mean is, to be a great evangelist, you don't have to be educated or eloquent. You just need to let the lion of the gospel out of its cage and let it do the work. In other words, the power that opens the eyes of the blind is contained in the truth, not in the beauty of your presentation of the truth. Because you remember Romans 1.16, don't you? For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. You remember, I hope, Romans 10, 13 through 17. For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call upon him in whom they have not believed? And, and how shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring glad tidings of good things. Here it is. So therefore, faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. This is exactly what the Apostle Peter tells us in chapter 1, verse 23. He says, you have been born again, not from perishable seed, but from imperishable seed. That is, through the living and abiding Word of God. And this, he says, is the Word which was preached to you. How did you get born again? How did you get saved? through the loving and courageous proclamation of the gospel to your soul. That's how, that's how it works. See church, never ever underestimate the life giving power of the truth clearly explained. And isn't it interesting to you and sad and tragic that in the last year, Hundreds of people have come forward, haven't they? Hundreds of people have come forward and, and, and released to the public how such and such, and such famous person hurt them or violated them or, or sexually abused them. Have you heard the stories? Seems like every single week someone new is coming forward with some story about how so, some celebrity out there behind the scenes did something horrible to them. And and you see, the truth was so important to the victim that it was a crime to keep it silent. How much more, how much more should we feel compelled to go public with the most shareable message in the world? 
because ours is not a message of scandal, but of salvation. Ours is not a message of being disgraced, but of being delivered by sovereign grace. Ours is not a message about the one who hurt us, but about the one who saved us. And it's true, you are not apostles, and you never have been, and you never will be. But your mission, or at least a part of your mission, is to bring about the faith of God's elect through the proclamation of the truth. The question is, can you see, can you see that as Christians, we are gospel publicists? whose job is not only to know the facts, but with passion to report the facts? Can you see that election doesn't make our evangelism meaningless, but election guarantees that our evangelism cannot possibly fail? Do you believe that the word of God clearly proclaimed alone has the power to do what you could never do, namely to raise lost souls from spiritual death? My question is, who are they? Who are they? Who are those people sovereignly placed in your lives who desperately need to hear the life-giving truth of the gospel? Because the gospel, to be sure, is good news. But it's good news only if it gets there on time. But this finally raises the question, doesn't it? If bringing about the faith of God's elect through making known the truth is fundamental to our identity as slaves of Christ, and it is, then the question is, what truth are we to make known? The truth about what? If if making known the truth is what God uses to bring about the faith of the elect, then, then what truth are we supposed to tell people? And that brings us to defining reality number three. You exist to make known the hope of eternal life. You exist to make known the hope of eternal life. Look at verses 1 and 2 together, and I want you to notice how each phrase builds upon the other. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Why? Number one, for the faith of the chosen of God. And number two, for the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness. And here it is, number three, he is an apostle for the hope of eternal life, which the God who cannot lie promised before the ages began. There. Did you see it? Did you see the connection? The purpose of Paul's apostleship was to bring about the faith of God's elect. Agreed? But how would Paul do that? By making known the truth. Okay, yes, I understand that. But but the truth about what? What did he say? The truth about the hope of eternal life. Do you see, central to Paul's mission was to bring about the faith of the elect by making known the truth about eternal life. Isn't that profound? The, the hope of eternal life is what, is what drove Paul to, to hit the streets and to preach in the synagogues and to be willing to be hated and jailed and whipped and beaten and to have his head caved in with stones. He was willing to have all of that happen to him for the very simple reason that there was hope, life-changing, soul-satisfying, destiny-altering hope, namely the hope of eternal life. Are you, are you kidding me? Eternal life? That's, that's what everybody is looking for. Everybody. Miracle water, the fountain of youth, the spring of eternal life, the secret to immortality is here. And you have it. And it's yours. And, and it's not merely living a really long time. It is everlasting and ever-increasing pleasure in God forever. That's what everybody is looking for, isn't it? Deep down in their souls, whether they realize it or not, people have this insatiable hunger for that thing 
that will satisfy their deepest longings forever. Tell me I'm wrong. Isn't that what you want? Isn't that what everybody wants? And the thing that will eternally satisfy our souls forever is what eternal life is, which is everlasting and ever-increasing pleasure in God forever, which is found only by faith in Jesus Christ alone. Do you see any shame or fear or reluctance or trepidation or hesitation that we have in making known the gospel to lost people is owing in large measure to the fact that we do not get eternal life. Because if we did, how much differently would our lives become? I mean, imagine, imagine that you were the only person on the planet who had ever heard of the rock band, the Beatles. Imagine you were the only person who had ever heard of the rock band, the Beatles. And if you hate the Beatles, like I do, then pick your favorite band. Or imagine you were the only person in the world who had ever tasted ice cream. The only one, just you. You, you alone have ever tasted ice cream in the whole world. Or uh, um, uh, prime rib. Or you were the only person in the world, ever in the world, who had seen the Star Wars movies. Or you were the only person in the world who had ever petted a kitten. Okay, those are ridiculous scenarios, I know, but, but, but you get it. If you were the only person in the world who had ever experienced any of those things, you would have absolutely no fear or shame in telling complete strangers, friend, friend, stop, come here, come here, come and listen to this. Friend, come and taste this. Friend, come and see this. Friend, come and feel this. Friend, come and enjoy this. And yet what we have to offer in Christ is so much infinitely more than the Beatles or ice cream or petting kittens. No, what we are offering is everlasting and ever increasing pleasure in God forever. And yet I know what you're thinking. I know what you're thinking, Jared. That's a fine illustration and I see where you're going with that. But the difference is there's no cost to enjoy those things. You don't, got, you don't have to repent of your sins to pet a cat. There's no repentance required. You don't have to give up anything to have ice cream. To which I reply, that's true. There is a cost to following Christ. And it is weighty. And it is massive. And in a very real sense, you very much do have to give up absolutely everything. But, but the question is, even though you do have to give up everything to follow Christ, in the end, what are you really giving up? What are you really giving up? Only the things that would have led to destruction and that do not satisfy anyway. The question is, do you have eternal life? Do you have it? See, in a room this size, I would be a traitor to you if I didn't at least pose that question. Do you have eternal life? Are you truly, actually trusting in Jesus Christ alone as the King and Savior and treasure of your soul? Are you truly born again? Do you actually belong to Jesus Christ? Are you in submission to the King? Because what fools are they, what fools are they who for a drop of pleasure will drink a sea of wrath. But you don't have to drink that wrath. You don't have to. You can have what Christ purchased. You can have salvation free of charge, purchased and paid for in full by the sin-bearing death of Jesus Christ in the place of the very ones who deserve to die. You can have transferred by faith to your bankrupt spiritual bank account eternal salvation purchased and paid for in full. You can have that, you know. And all you have to give up are the things that would have led to your destruction anyway. Do you have eternal life? And if you do have it, 
and I hope you all do, then the question becomes, okay, well, then does it burn in your soul to make it known to those who need it so badly? Is the, what the eternal life is, is eternal life compelling enough, beautiful enough, thrilling enough for you to share it with the poor sinners in your path? Do you see that central to your identity as a Christ follower is to bring about the faith of God's elect by making known the truth about eternal life? Because look at what Paul says in verses two and three, and I close with this. Paul says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of the chosen of God, and for the knowledge of the truth, and for the hope of eternal life, which the God who cannot lie promised before the ages began. But he made, made it manifest in his word, in his own time, by the message which I was entrusted according to the commandment of our Savior God. Now, do you see it? Do you see the juxtaposition between when God promised eternal life and when he revealed eternal life? The God who cannot lie promised eternal life in eternity past to be sure. But what did Paul just say about when and where he revealed eternal life? What did, what did he say? He revealed it in his word, in his own time, by the message which I was entrusted. You see, listen very carefully to what I'm about to say. Because what I'm about to say is going to define in so many ways what should drive and consume your life. The truth about eternal life is contained in God's word, is communicated through a message, is committed to you by God, which he commands you to proclaim. I'm going to say that again because you, you need to feel that. The truth about eternal life is contained in his word. It's in the text. It is communicated through a message. Real people, real people having real conversations communicated through a message. It is committed to you by God. This is a stewardship given to you. And oh, by the way, he commands you to preach it. That is your life. That is who you are. At least that is a part of your life. Do you see guilt and, and fear and, and mere duty and obligation? Those are not compelling motivations to open our mouths to, to lost people. Those are not compelling and lasting motivations to do that. That does not work over the long haul. Rather, the best evangelists in the world, listen very carefully, the best evangelists in the world are those gripped by a sense of wonder at the eternal treasures purchased and paid for by Jesus Christ. When our jaw hits the floor at inescapable wonder, at the unfathomable riches of Christ, when we almost can't believe it, when we are overwhelmed by the unspeakable majesty of Jesus Christ and for everything that he accomplished for people like us, well, then we find ourselves willing to risk it all and make Christ known to bankrupt sinners who need him so badly. That is who you are. That is your life. That is your mission. And thus, our series in Titus begins. Let's go to the Lord. O oh Christ, O sovereign king and great emperor of the universe, we give thanks to you, we give thanks to you because you rule and reign. You are far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. 
You have all authority in heaven and on earth, and you have given us a mission, Lord. And, and guilt and fear and just the, the sense of obligation, oh Lord, that, that is just not compelling enough for our souls, and yet you never motivate us by those things alone, Lord. You want us to see that we have the most shareable message in the world. And I pray, oh Lord, that we would, we would not be able to look upon indifference upon the multitudes, that we would not be able to look without, without feeling a tug or a pull as we, as we walk by people and look in their eyes and, and wonder what it is they're hoping in. Oh Lord, I pray that you would make us a church that one digs deep in your word and has our souls made fat by the truth. And yet at the exact same time, Lord, that we would be a pe people compelled with passion to preach the unfathomable riches of who you are. Help us, Lord. We want to be a healthy church. We want to be everything that Paul tells us a church should have and do. And I pray that by your grace and for your glory, that you would grant us to be that kind of church. And it's in your matchless name that we pray. Amen.